A lot of what I have to say tonight, I've relied on, stood on the shoulders of giants, not the least of which is a good friend of mine named Kevin Twitt. He's at Belmont. He does RUF there. And then also a mentor of mine, a man by the name of Tim Keller. Uh, we're looking today at uh, the topic of marriage, and I'll explain why we're doing that in just a second. But much like authors need to cite their sources, sometimes speakers need to do so as well. And so I'm doing that for the sake of uh, attributing somebody else's work to themselves. Now, with that being said, we've been taking a look all semester long at the topic of relationships. We've been saying that you were made for them. We've been saying as well that uh, God saves us through relationship. We've been saying things like as well that not only are we saved from them, but you were saved for them. That God has made you as a human being, made in His image, a relational being, God Himself, has made you for relationships. And we've looked at different topics throughout our semester, and today we in many ways come to a highlight of relationships, and that is marriage, the topic of marriage. Now, why would we take a look at the topic of marriage for those of you who most of you, I would assume, are not married? Well, most of you want to be married or desire it at some time in your life, and so it's nice to have an understanding of what the Christian vision and hope for marriage actually is so that you know what to look for as you're on that journey towards considering marriage um, yourself. And so I think that is uh, incredibly important for uh, us as well to consider just the idea of forecasting and taking a look at that. So without any further ado, let me pray for us. Let me read the text and then we'll uh, pray together. So look at Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to begin in verse 21 and read through the rest of the chapter. Now there is a lot in this text that gets raised. You've got these instructions to husbands and wives. You've got the idea of um, looking back into the book of Genesis. And there's so much that we're going to cover tonight. So in many ways... This is like a 30,000-foot flyby, but I want to be able to talk about it. I can't talk about everything in this text, but I do want to touch on some of the major themes. So let's read together verse 21 following. This is God's word to us. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he, Christ, might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's ask him to now help us to understand what he would teach us tonight. Father in heaven, we ask that now that you would come by your spirit, that you would send forth the spirit to open our eyes to what you would have to teach us tonight. Lord, we have a thousand questions about marriage. What is it like? What's the purpose of it? And many of us are just simply confused about it. Others of us find ourselves being cynical and snarky about it because we just wonder what's the point. 
We know that you teach us about this, that it's written in your word, that you have spoken about it. And so we ask that you would make us wise tonight as we consider what it is that you would teach us. We lift this all up in your name. Amen. Well, we take a look tonight at the topic of marriage. And before we go there, why? Why even take a look at it? Why consider it? Well, I think that predominantly because two major views sort of exist about marriage. Let me, let me give you one of them uh, uh, that comes from an article right here in, uh, in the, uh, the, 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 article, the, uh, the publication, The Atlantic Monthly. Here's how it goes. In the fall of 2013, uh, they ran an article about a man whose avatar name was Dave Cat. He and his wife, Sador, are pictured in the article talking about their seemingly normal marriage. They have matching wedding bands. They watch television together. In fact, they're making plans for their 15th year anniversary. But what is unique about Sador is that she is a doll. She's not a real person. Yes, Dave Cat is married to a synthetic person. And when asked about his relationship with her, he says, quote, A friend of mine just got divorced after 17 years of marriage. That's an enormous investment of time, money, and emotion, and I'm not interested in having someone in my life who may bail at me at any time or who transforms into someone unpleasant. Ultimately, getting romantically involved, and I love this phrase, with an organic woman doesn't seem worth it to me. An organic woman. Now, while this might sound incredibly strange, I think it gets at a real sentiment that most, if not all of us, have at one point sort of had run through our head, and that is that real marriage is hard, and we doubt if we're up for the task. That's one side of the, of the equation. I think there's another side as well, and it happens a lot in sort of the Christian subculture if you've grown up in the church, and that is this, that if you get married, your life will just be bliss. I mean, scroll through some Instagram feeds. You'll see the pictures, right, of folks having these blissful times together out in the mountains of Canada or something like that. And it's just glorious and it's blissful. And the picture is, if you too can find a spouse, you too can have a soulmate, as it were. And I would like to suggest to you that the Bible is going to give us today something radically different. That it's going to blow up both of those views. That it's going to provide wisdom and rootedness to the former. And it ought to burst the bubble of the latter to show us something that's actually more robustly biblical. You see, several of you have come from homes with broken marriages, or perhaps you've witnessed the breakdown of marriages around you, and you say, my experience tells me that it's just too much. But for others, you're saying, I can't wait. I can't wait till I finally find my spouse so I can sort of get on with life and life will finally have meaning. But listen, y'all, I say all of this to serve as a contrast to what Paul is telling us here tonight about marriage. He's going to say that marriage is intrinsically good, no matter how hard it might be. And moreover, the hardness in no way eliminates the goodness of it. Marriage is a huge topic to consider, but I think that Paul is laying before us a glorious picture of what marriage is, of what it's made for, and the power that's actually bound up in it. And at some point, most of you, will get married, as I've already mentioned. It's good for you to see this, to consider it, and to ask the question, what is, if I am a follower of Jesus, a picture of what marriage ought to be? It's good for you to have categories of marriage, as I've already mentioned, so that as you date and you move along in your relationships, you know what you're shooting after. So tonight, 
we're going to look primarily at the definition, the point, and the power of marriage. The definition, the point, and the power. So let's take a look, first of all, at what I mean by the point of marriage. That slide is not supposed to be there, so I'm going to go ahead and run through it. We'll come back and get it in just a little bit. The Bible says something unique about marriage, that is the definition of marriage. It views it not as some sort of social contract that was created in the Bronze Age, but rather it is something that, as Jesus himself says in Matthew chapter 19, that it existed from the beginning. The beginning of creation itself. But it's right to ask, well, what is the essence of marriage? What is the, what is the thing that, uh, that really defines what it is? And Paul shows us here, as we take a look at it, and it's, in, in short, it's this, that the essence of marriage, at the very heart of marriage, is a promise. It's a promise. That what lies at the heart of marriage is a vow. To say it another word, another way, there is a covenant There is a covenant at the heart of marriage. And we see this in verse 25. Take a look with me there on your sheet. Paul writes, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. That is, giving Himself up is His death. So in other words, Jesus, by giving Himself up for His people, that is, the church, made a covenant unto death for her. Now, I don't know if you're anything like me, but that word covenant brings alongside of it a lot of confusion. What in the heck is it? But covenant is a profoundly robust biblical concept. And most of us, while we may have never heard of the idea of a covenant, we do sort of have categories for the idea of a contract. Think about it like this. Charter Communications, that's who I do my internet business with, right? They run internet into my house. We have a deal. We've both committed to terms through the contract. I pay them money each month, and they provide me with internet service. But if at any time the terms change, I can leave. The thing that holds a contract together is a commitment by both parties to the terms. Additionally, if any time the party can break the contract, and though they may suffer a penalty for doing so, the contract is terminated. And I would like to suggest to you that the idea of a covenant is much more deep. It's much more robust. It's much more rich. Because why? Because a covenant holds parties together, in this case, a husband and a wife, not so much to the terms, but to the person. It is a promise to a person. And in the Gospel, Paul is telling us that we get God Himself Promising Himself to us. To us, y'all. So much so, that even our sin against Him, or to put in other words, our unfaithfulness to Him, would never, ever, ever, ever separate us from Him. For His covenant to us is deeper still. And when we see Paul talking about Christ's love for the church, that is what is behind his love for his people. A promise all the way to death. So here's the point, y'all. At the heart of marriage is a covenant promise that a man and a woman make together. That promise is permanent, like Christ's love for his people. That promise is exclusive. It's God's love for His people. That covenant is public. 
for the world to see. It has legal ramifications. And it is a promise to another person. And if you have that, you have a marriage. Now, why does this matter for you and for me? This means this. That marriage is a promise that you make to another person. Listen to me about being there for them in the future. It is, so to speak, to take out your appointment book, your calendar, and to put on your calendar that you will be there for that person down the road. When you make promises to your, to your spouse at your wedding, you're not making promises about feelings or emotional states. But what you're saying is, in this case for me with my wife Laura, I said, I promise that I will be faithful. I promise that I will love you till death do us part. It is a promise to be, it's a promise to yourself in the future, to somebody else rather in the future. Now listen, why would we might drive this home for a moment? Listen, this is very crucial. Therefore, this means that marriage is not a pledge of an emotional state toward a person. While there is that to be sure, those feelings will certainly come and go. I'm telling you from experience. And the Bible is going to say, if you think that that's what marriage is about, you have no idea what it really is. Feelings will come and go, but a promise of commitment doesn't. In other words, you can be committed to someone when your feelings for them may or may not be there. That is entirely possible and real in marriage. And secondly, I'll just say this. This also means, therefore, that you're never really ready for marriage. You're never really ready for it. Many of us think, I need to get ready for marriage, and if I can sort of get holy enough, or I can sort of love this person enough, or if I can know beyond the shadow of a doubt, well then, I'm ready to get married. And what the Bible is telling us is that marriage has very little to do with being ready for it. Now it is true that we pray for maturity, we think about the decisions that we're going to make and the promises that we're going to make, but listen... I would like to show you that you're never going to feel, as it were, 100% ready to get married. That's why you need Jesus. Therefore, if and when you are considering marriage, do not think, well, I'll consider it when I'm ready. One, you'll never be perfectly ready. God desires for you to trust Him in your weakness. That's a picture there. So we've taken a look primarily here at the definition of marriage, saying that it is a promise. But now we can ask about it. Well, what is it actually about? And that takes us secondly to the idea of the picture of marriage. Secondly, the picture of marriage. I'm looking primarily at verse 32. And did you notice when we read the passage that Paul began talking about the roles of women and men, of wives and husbands in marriage, but then out of nowhere he shocks us with something? It's like a grenade. It's like a bomb goes off. And he says this in verse 32. But I'm saying that it, that marriage, refers to Christ and the church. You see, in a sense, he is talking about marriage, but then he says, I'm not talking about marriage only. What could be going on here? Here it is. Paul is telling us something incredible about what marriage itself is is. He is telling us that marriage, and here it is, is a picture of something far, far greater than what exists on the surface between a husband and a wife. He is saying that's what's embodied in a marriage between a man and a woman, that there is a profound, verse 32, mystery. 
And on the surface, a man and a woman making a promise, yes, but there is always something more attached to that covenantal promise. Illustration to maybe help you. Some of you in a few weeks and some of you in a few months are going to be graduating. And when you do, you will receive likely a little eight and a half by 11 piece of paper that says Bachelor of Blank. And it will say Texas Christian University at the top of it. And I'm talking, of course, about your college degree or your college diploma. Now, what is interesting about that piece of paper is that it's probably worth about 35 cents. That's all the piece of paper is worth. And you know that. And moreover, if you were to lose it or were it to get stolen, guess what? You could get another piece of paper. And it wouldn't take away from what you've learned. And this is telling us something. That that means that behind that paper, as it were, behind that sheet of paper is a body of knowledge that you've labored hard at for years. That behind it stands four years of hard work, of blood, sweat, and tears. Four years of new friendships and relationships. Four years of perhaps loss. And so, so much more. And so the paper is a symbol of something far greater than the paper itself. Now why share that with you? Because what the Apostle Paul is saying, and what the Bible tells us, is that behind marriage is something far greater. As great as it is, as great as marriage is, it is pointing to a far greater reality, and it is this. Jesus' love, His crazy, mad, affectionate love for His people. I'll use language that we've already used tonight. Behind marriage stands Jesus' covenant promises, His covenant love for you and for me and for all of His people. And therefore, marriage is a picture of God's love for His people in Christ. To change the metaphor, it's a sign that points to something greater. Marriage, therefore, puts on display the amazing love that God has for His people. Every married couple, whether Christians or not, are actually telling the world about God's love for sinners. And the way that He commits Himself unto death, unto death in that institution. That's what the story is telling. You see, but it's not just that it speaks of marriage, and this is what you must understand. It speaks of faithfulness in the midst of broken marriages. You see, all through Scripture, God is a faithful husband. And we, you and me, are actually presented as a wife who constantly leaves Him, who constantly re re um, rejects Him and gives herself over to other lovers. Listen to what the book of Hosea says. It says, Rejoice not, O Israel. Exult not in the peoples. Listen to this. Strong language. For you have played the whore. This is how God's, this is how you and me are identified. As we turn our hearts away from God. But He is the faithful one. Because as you will read, listen, this is what's so amazing. Is that the story of God's grace is that He goes after His whoring people because of His love for her. Because it is so great. And again, we hear from the prophet Hosea, look here, where it writes this. Where he says this, Therefore, behold, 
I will allure her. Another word for allure is to woo. I will woo her and bring her into the wilderness. And I will speak tenderly to her. That's his people. And in that day declares the Lord, you will what? After you have been so captured by my love for you, you will call me my husband. Isn't that beautiful? In some, marriage, therefore, is meant to be a pointer. It's a drama. It's a picture that puts on display to the world that God is, always has been, and always will. He will always be in crazy love with sinners like you and me, the whore bride, His people, the church. And this is telling us something profound, y'all. It tells us, first of all, this. This means that on the one hand, marriage isn't the point of existence. I know some of y'all really feel like that. That the whole goal of my life is just to get married. And it isn't the end, the Bible is teaching us, that all of us are headed to. This is encouraging to you if you aren't married and you want to be, but it's also encouraged if you are married and you don't want to be anymore. You see that, right? You see, and if you, and if you are married, it's telling us something more about what marriage is. It means this, that marriage isn't the highest good for the Christian. The Bible just doesn't idolize marriage like some Christians do. Did y'all catch that? The Bible just doesn't idolize marriage like Christians do. But it, yet it holds it high. It's a pointer to something greater. Jesus' love for the church. And as intense and as profound as a husband's and a wife's love for each other are, this pales in comparison to the great love that God has for His people. Secondly, in terms of application, this cautions us for something. It cautions us to make the, the potential of making the spouse an idol. And you need to understand that now. Well, you are college students. This is so important because what often happens is that we look at somebody else to meet the longings that God Himself, that only God Himself can meet and give to us. And here's the thing. If you look at another person, especially your spouse, to give to you what only God can give you, do you know what you are going to do? You are going to crush them. Because they cannot be God. I mean, think about it. Can you be that for them? And so what actually happens then in dysfunctional marriages, one spouse is looking to the other spouse to give them what only Jesus can give them. And it squeezes. It's like trying to get blood out of a turnip. It just can't happen. And you know what that means? I can say this with all clarity to you. And if Laura were standing here, I would say it and she would say it about me. I love that woman more than any other woman on the face of this planet. I would die for her like that. I would easily give my life up for her. But there is still something about her that's not enough. She is not enough for me. Only Jesus can be that. And the same goes for me, for her. Do you have that category in your mind? Do you work that out practically in your life? Some of you, as you are dating, realize the potential to make the significant other a God to you. But when you do, you're actually, you're actually exploiting them. Strong language. You're asking them to be God for you. And only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus can do that. 
The last thing that I want to say is, is that this means too that because marriage is so much more, it's about God's love for His people, that means something else, that marriage is always meant to be for the good of the world. Listen, it's meant to be for the good of the world. It's meant to be for the good of others. And I love what this writer, he's an Eastern Orthodox theologian named Alexander Schmemann. This is what he writes. It is beautiful. Take a screenshot of this if you want it, because I see problems left and right in this, not only in my own marriage, but in marriages of my friends and in the church. Listen to what he writes. A marriage which does not constantly crucify its own selfishness and self-sufficiency, which does not, quote, die to itself, that it may be pointed beyond itself, is not a Christian marriage. The real sin of marriage today is not adultery or lack of, quote, adjustment or even mental cruelty. It is the idolization of the family itself, the refusal to understand marriage as directed toward the kingdom of God. That is profound. That is a bomb going off on the way that Christians conceive of marriages. It's like we, face, we do face-to-face and God calls us together as man and wife to go out and to be a blessing in the world. And when you have these categories, you're actually beginning to approximate in better ways what marriage is all about. Now, perhaps you're convinced that I've just made marriage a cold, empty institution. Why would anyone want to be a part of it, right? Well, I hope you'll see is that marriage as well is something that's incredibly powerful and that it has profound built-in capacity to tell us about God's love for us. So let's take a look thirdly at the idea of the power of marriage. Take a look at verses 26 and 27. You'll see the reason that Christ dies for His church. He dies for His people, His bride. Here it is. He dies that He might sanctify her so that He might present the church or her to Himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and blame and without blemish. Listen, the whole reason Jesus has died for you and for me is that he might sanctify his people. You see, what this means, therefore, is this that marriage is meant to change us. Marriage has in it a power to bring about beauty out of broken things. And what makes marriage unique is that in marriage, God uses the relationship with the spouse. All the love, all the fights, all the joys and the struggles to make both people more and more like Christ. That really is what marriage is like. I share this illustration often in the marriages that I get to perform Most of us tend to think that marriage is an arrival. It's the end game. That it's about arriving at this place so that I'm good enough to get married. So the metaphor is of like a sculpted statue. But that's not the case at all. To play the metaphor, to play the metaphor, we are unfinished works at best. You see, imagine this instead. Imagine the sculptor sitting with a block of marble and he begins to chisel away at something. And as you see that block, you begin to see fingers and a hand emerge out of the marble. A beautiful hand with definition and with detail. And then he begins to chisel away and a cheekbone begins to emerge out of the block. 
It's the most exquisite cheekbone that you've ever seen. Here's the thing I'm trying to get at. Marriage is far more like saying, what God is working on is my spouse. And I want a front row seat in seeing what He is going to do in their life. And who He is making them to be. Who is an unfinished project. And by His grace, I would love to be used by Him as He makes him or her, whoever it is, more like himself. And of course, marriage is an invitation for that person as well. Let me put it this way. That marriage is like having a front row seat in the sanctifying process of your spouse. And God will use you to knock off all the rough edges to make them more like Jesus. And guess what? He will use them to make you more like Christ as well. That's the inherent power of what marriage does. Now listen, this is profound. This means this, that you will marry... You are going to marry someone that is not perfect. And part of what it means to be married is that you are signing up for the work of sanctification not only in your life, but in their life as well. Are you ready for that? Some of y'all are looking for the perfect spouse. Some ladies might even think if Jesus were to come in, He wouldn't be good enough. But the point is what? You always marry a sinner. And when you throw two sinners into a marriage like that, guess what? That creates a lot of chaos. That creates a lot of rough edges. And what what Keller points out in his book as well is that marriage therefore has the power to actually overturn verdicts that other people have said about you in your life. You see, if your marriage is healthy and strong, the world can, can just utterly run you down and it can suck, but if things are great with your spouse, you move out into the world with confidence. But I can tell you this too. If the world sings your praises, but things at home are horrible with your spouse, it doesn't matter. Your life will be in the dumps because marriage has that sort of inbuilt power into it. This lastly leads to a huge myth that I think most of us struggle with to be confronted that is perpetuated in our culture, and that is this. It's the idea of finding, quote, the one. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Right, the one equals myth. It's a myth. And it's actually quite paralyzing. But that's not the way that Bible speaks about it. Let me put this to rest. Going into marriage, there isn't just one person out there for you to marry from our vantage point. This is a paralyzing thought to walk around with. I mean, for example, well, did I miss him on my way to class on Monday? I mean, was I supposed to say hey to her? I don't... Was that the one? You want to live like that? Go for it. Welcome to absolute insanity if you want to do that. Because that's what it'll make you. You see, it makes for great chick flicks and great rom-coms, but the point is it sucks in life. And what I want to show you is, is why this is so, um, this is why this is so acute and, and wonderful to say. I listen, listen to what um, former pastor theologian said. He says this, The assumption is that there is someone just right for us to marry, that if we look closely enough, we will find the right person. This moral assumption overlooks a crucial aspect to marriage. It fails to appreciate the fact that we always marry the wrong person. We never know whom we marry. We just think we do. Or even if we first marry the right person, just give it a while and he or she will change. 
For marriage, being the enormous thing that it is, means that we're not the same people after we've entered into it. The primary challenge of marriage, therefore, is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. Why is this so? Because marriage is so strong that it changes you. It changes you. And that takes me back to this original slide here. Listen to what writer uh, Lewis Smedes writes about this. It's so wonderful when he puts it this way. When I married my wife, I had hardly a smidgen sense for what I was getting into with her. How could I? How could I know know how much she would change over 25 years? How could I know how much I would change? My wife has lived with at least five different men since we were wed. And each of the five, what? Has been me. That's what marriage does. That's the power that it has to rewire you, to make you more like Jesus. And if you enter into it, that's what's in store for you. That's what Paul is telling us here when he talks about Christ washing us and making us more like himself. Okay, so here's the sort of money pitch. Knowing this is marriage, how in the you-know-what can anybody do it? Where do we find the resources for it? Because I'm going to tell you this, it's a glorious thing. It is the best thing that I've ever done in my life except trust Jesus. It's also the most (laughs) mind-numbingly hard thing that I've ever done in my life as well. Where do we find the resources to do it? Well, you see, at the heart of marriage, as we've already said, is a picture of the gospel itself. Jesus is lovesick. He is a lover that will rescue his bride at the very cost of his life. So much so that he himself took the death that she deserved and she gets the life that he deserves. And when that begins to get deep down into your bones, you have unlimited resources to be able to do the married life. I'm telling you, don't grow cynical with it. The resurrection is real. The grave is empty. Christ has risen. He has risen indeed and therefore there is power for you when you do get married one day. You think I'm lying? Listen to this story. A friend of mine got the crushing news one day that his wife had been unfaithful to him on several occasions. He wanted to throw up. He wanted to die because he loved his wife. But because he was a Christian, he knew that Jesus freed him as well to actually divorce his wife if he wanted to. That Jesus stood beside him should he want to make that decision. But this is what he said. Ryan, I'm crushed. I feel betrayed and our marriage is over. And this is because my wife has committed adultery. I wasn't her first love. But if you look at what she did, it pales in comparison to how I've crushed God's heart. To how many times I've betrayed Him. To how many times I'm given Him the opportunity to end my marriage to Him. And yet, God has remained in the face of my sin. Therefore, if God didn't get rid of me, how could I possibly get rid of my wife? I'm choosing to stay with her, and I trust that God has the power to rebuild what is dead. He is the God who renews all things. And I can tell you, by God's grace, their marriage is still together, and they are thriving. That's what the power of the gospel can do. 
On the cross, Jesus wasn't just dying for anybody in some nondescript sense. He was dying for his people who had over and over again run away from him to other lovers like power and sex and money and control and comfort. He was dying for his bride, his bride, you and me. So where does the power for a healthy marriage come from? It comes from seeing a death that actually secures marriage. Your husband Jesus remaining faithful to you when you bail on him. And no matter what, he stays. He stays. And if you are in Christ, you are stuck with him. Hallelujah, that's great news. He loves us with a love that never lets us go. Let's pray together. Thank you, great husband, for your unending love for us, for your commitment to us in the face of our unfaithfulness. And I pray that you would help each of us, whether we're married or we're considering marriage or we're cynical about marriage, that you would somehow use what we've looked at tonight and teach us. And that you would show us the great hope that exists in marriage, the great beauty that exists in marriage, that we can be known, really known, and not be abandoned. That that's the great hope that it offers to us. And I pray, O oh Lord, that you would show us that, and that you would encourage us. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.